Welcome to The Truth In This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today, I have the privilege of speaking with the founder and executive director of Made in Baltimore. Please welcome Andy Cook. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here, Rob. Good to have you on another another fellow cook of different persuasions here. I'm a cook in the kitchen. I'm sure you are as well, but your name has cook in it. So you you, you have that for branding. Yeah, uh, no <laughs> so I want to start off with I gave a very parsed down intro, but I want to allow you to um, introduce yourself how you would introduce yourself. And this one is interesting. Um, with that, what is your favorite metaphor for describing entrepreneurship? <laughs> It's definitely Sisyphus. Uh, Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the mountain. <clears throat> um, but uh, <laughs> introduce myself. So yeah, Andy, uh, I am, uh, as you said, director at Made in Baltimore. Uh, founded the program back in 2015. Um, I'm a Baltimore native. Uh, born in 1982, grew up in Towson, been living the city life uh, as an adult, and uh, never looked back. Really love love my city, um, and uh, happy to happy to play a role in um, in its advancement. Yeah, I mean, so so both both for the '80s. Um, I'm a few years few years younger, '85, but uh, yeah. in the city, and yeah, I mean, similar goals. I mean, you're 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 crushing it away. Have you like I, I mentioned that I was chatting with you today, and every person's like, "You're talking to Andy." I was like, "Yeah, the big guy over there, Andy." Uh, so so say a little bit more on like how um, I'm going to refer to it as MIB, and I'm mean, yeah. I know you know there's going to be a corny reference later. Yeah. Uh, but tell me how like MIB really began, what have you? Like, what was the thinking into it? What was those like humble beginnings? What was that, that introductory introductory story? For sure, uh, I was working at the Department of Planning in 2014. I was tasked with doing an industrial vacancy survey of the city of Baltimore. So, finding all of the vacant buildings and lands in our industrial areas, identifying them, creating a spreadsheet, and then trying to figure out some strategies of things we could do with them to bring sure. them back into a productive state. Uh, around the same time, I attended a conference hosted by a group called the Urban Manufacturing Alliance in Philadelphia, uh, UMA for short. And what UMA does is advance uh, thinking, organizing policy around urban manufacturing in the United States. One of the things that they were doing at the time was promoting this idea of the what they now call local brand initiatives or made-in initiatives uh, across the country. So I learned what those were uh, at that event. At the time, there were only a few of them, a small handful, most notably out of San Francisco and New York. And basically, I thought, you know, Baltimore City needs something like that. We've got, uh, you know, all this all this vacant industrial properties around the, around the city. Uh, we should be coming up with a way to identify the businesses that need that space to grow. So I started reaching out to small manufacturers here in Baltimore City to ask them, what do they need out of a building? What do you need from real estate here in town? And the answer I heard predominantly was, we definitely have real estate needs, but before we can tackle anything like that, we just need to grow the business. We need to get more customers. We need to you know, drive up our revenue. And so hearing that, uh, I and a few other collaborators at the time who were all all organizing around something that was at the time called the Industrial Arts Collective, which mm -hmm. was kind of an affiliation of maker spaces around the city, yeah. uh, decided to put on a pop-up store that whose really its main aim was to 
promote these local makers, just shine a light on them, give them platform yeah. to showcase their products and help them get some new customers. Uh, it was very successful. We ran it for a month in Station North, uh, had over 80 companies participate, which was far more than we really anticipated. Uh, sales were strong, and by and large, everyone that participated said in a post-event survey that they would love a program that would continue to support them and help help brand them as a local company. So uh, from that day on, that became you know my mission. Uh, I fundraised for about a year, and by the beginning of 2017, was able to transition this into my full-time work. Nice. Wow. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um... So obviously, like made in Baltimore really fits well within the the arts and, and cultural like segment here. Like I see the billboards, I see people that I that I know that I've interviewed, and that's that's really that's really great. So I want to. So there's no need to go to that next question that I have because you already covered it. Uh, <laughs> so. I want to um, ask about this. I read that your, your career um, involved working in, as an environmental planner, uh, Office of Sustainability. So sustainability is often like an afterthought to like business or what have you. I've talked to a few people and that seems to be coming up a bit more, but usually the focus is profit, bottom line, so on. Um, what is one suggestion based on your, your background to, you know, that you would share with businesses or individuals who want to look at how they can reduce waste? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to back up, first of all, to sure. the uh, kind of idea of sustainability. Sure. Uh, a lot of people conflate sustainability with environmentalism, and they're definitely related. But I like to think of sustainability more in kind of the what they call the three pillars concept or, or, or kind of three, the triple bottom line. So you're in a business setting, you're thinking not only about, you know, the environmental sustainability of what you do, the, the carbon footprint, uh, you know, impact on waste stream, et cetera. You're thinking about the financial sustainability as well. Cause you've got to, you know, at the end of the day, you can't be losing money in, in a business. Uh, and you also have to think about the social sustainability and, and the impact that your company has uh, or your business has on, um, you know, the community that's, uh, that it's a part of, um, you know, whether it's treating its workers right, whether it's exploiting people, you know, all these, all these kind of more like social human side of, of, of the equation. So all three of those things, I think, are essential ingredients in, in you know, creating something that is sustainable, sure. um, that, can, that can last in perpetuity. Um, so I think that there's a lot of different ways that localism addresses that and sure waste reduction is one of them i mean I, you know i walk down my alley on trash day these days and what's the number one thing you see there it's cardboard boxes you know it's everyone's yeah. buying stuff online getting stuff shipped to them and that generates a huge amount of waste um yes. if you're buying something that was made locally from a you know retailer on your main street all that packaging is eliminated all the carbon footprint of shipping it from around the globe is eliminated right. um you know, there's of course other other trade-offs that happen in that in that equation, but um, but simply simply sourcing locally, sourcing regionally, really does reduce the waste and the other kind of negative environmental impacts of of your consumer habits. Yeah, thank thank you for clarifying that because yeah, I think those those things are often conflated or have you, and um, it's missed. It's just like oh no, like learning now, learn something new. So thank you. <laughs> uh, I, so I read, you know, because obviously I did some stalking on you over the last few weeks or what have you. So uh, photojournalism, 
how how does how does that help with your your background and your work that you're doing with uh, Made in Baltimore? Sure, I guess I have kind of two answers to that. Um, I got into the field of urban planning through photojournalism. So I trained as a photographer, you know, went to art school, um, worked as a photographer for most of my 20s. And when uh, I spent three years living in New Orleans, where I was photo editor at a, at a magazine, a food magazine there called Edible New Orleans. And in that capacity, <clears throat> um, didn't pay great, but man, did I eat well in that job. <laughs> um, and in that capacity, I was doing uh, a lot of stories around food systems, uh, particularly food systems as they related to the recovery, post-Katrina recovery of the city. And something I got really interested in was urban agriculture. There was a lot of urban farms, you know, popping up all over, all over the place, <clears throat> but not exactly all over the place. They were popping up specifically in neighborhoods that uh, had experienced really bad flooding and had a lot of uh, demolished homes and vacant lands and were, you know, by and large, mostly black neighborhoods. Right. And the people starting these farms tended, not always, of course, but frequently were uh, white people that came from other parts of the country, sort of like myself, you know, <laughs> interested in, you know, being do-gooders here to, here to help kind of, kind of attitude. Um, but, but the presence was, was changing these communities, you know, sure. it was, it was coming up with different uses, different activities that was going on there. And I became interested through, through doing these stories about these urban farms and these urban farmers, uh, you know, learning more about the social dynamics that were going on with, um, you know, these changes in land use and these changes in how food systems were being approached there. Um, and became interested in how urban farms could be used as a tool for kind of community redevelopment or revitalization, but with, you know, the, the huge kind of caveat that, uh, that race played a big role in that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> that's what I. That's when I decided to shift to um, urban planning as a career. I wanted to. I wanted to go to graduate school for urban planning to, to kind of study that and learn more about that process. Um, so it really was the the career in photojournalism that led me to that topic and that interest that then kind of shifted into the urban planning realm. Um, I guess another way that that background informs the work of made in Baltimore is, you know, it's. You know the saying, a picture's worth a thousand words. Yeah. Fully believe that. <laughs> um, and I think that visual, uh, visual communication is an extremely effective form of communication and can really, you know, make or break uh, a story that's being told. Um, you know, in, in the world of Maine Baltimore, we're dealing with, uh, you know, makers and manufacturers, product-based companies, yeah. uh, all many of whom are attempting to sell their wares online these days. And in order to do that, you have to have a picture of your product that goes online, right? And if that picture is blurry, uh, poorly lit, uh, out of focus, any of these things, you know, you pass right by it, just more internet noise. Yeah. But if it's really beautifully photographed, it's really well lit, if it's styled in a way that, you know, makes you think about other kinds of emotional things, it's like, it's a world of difference. And so that's yeah. all, that's all visual language. And, um, you know, that's something that I definitely pay attention to in our own work, uh, in the way that, you know, we, um, we market the programs that we do and sort of help showcase our members, but it's also something that we try and, uh, um, 
try and provide resources to our members to to address that. You know, we run photography, product photography workshops. Uh, we create a lookbook where we hire professional photographers to yeah. photograph their their products. So so that's always like very much uh, at the fore of, of of my mind anyway of like how we how we communicate. Um, you know the uniqueness and and awesomeness of of the, all the products that our members make. Yeah, um, and as a as a person that's creating a vi the an audio only medium, <laughs> I appreciate when there's a good picture taken and um, it's framed in a way, it's shot in a way. The billboards I've used the lookbook obviously for for research purposes and to get some of those uh, last minute gifts or what have you. There are people that are close to me who have different items <laughs> that I purchased uh, for, uh, via Made in Baltimore or have you. Uh, Glad to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So this this is I'm gonna I'm gonna shift a little bit here to to this question um, and it's something that that's come up recently in conversations I've had. So I said why not put it in here? Do you think we spend enough money on like innovation, macroly speaking? And what are your like observations in that area? Like, for instance, like I don't know if it's attached to innovation as much, but I hear different things from like artists. I hear different things from people like where are the resources? Where are these these opportunities? And I would imagine the same thing kind of happens for in terms of innovation. It seems like some people maybe get money or get funding or get support and others may not. And then that poses the question, at least in my head, are we spending enough? Are we putting enough towards innovation to have, you know, new new things, new ideas, new new people? have the opportunity, have a fair shake? I think that all depends on how you define innovation okay. and what we, you know, describe as, as innovative. Um, I think that commonly innovation is, and this kind of goes back to the, the you know, definitions of words like sustainability, sure. um, all, all in like what you mean by that. It can be kind of code. And I think innovation is often code for tech. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that a lot of people think of as, oh, you know, our innovation economy is all about new apps getting developed to deliver food to our doors. Um, but I think we need to have a broader definition of what innovation is. Mm -hmm. And once we do that, I think we'll see, we will see some sectors that are starved for resources. Um, you know, I think that uh, there's innovation happening in all corners of our economy, and it's not all about even in, even in manufacturing, it's not all about like laser cutters or, or uh, you know, CNC routers or whatever the like kind of advanced manufacturing tools that are on the market right now. It's also about, you know, uh, worker ownership structures. I think that right now, like Baltimore is, uh, has a lot of really interesting work happening in terms of worker-owned cooperative development. Yep. Uh, and I think that's one of the more innovative things going on. And Yes, I think it definitely needs more resources to be supported. Um, that's just one example, but but I think that you know we should be we should definitely be thinking um, more broadly about what you know what new ideas, uh, rather what corners of our kind of like small business economy uh, are generating new ideas and new new practices and expand the the definition of innovation to include them. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Um, so recently I had this uh, conversation um, uh, with um, Anita Kassoff from the Baltimore Museum of Industry. And then I went there and did a, did a visit or have you. And I noticed like just different industries that are just no longer here that were like big industries. Like I think of steel workers and I think, you know, there's a lot of shifts. And 
what are your your thoughts of like the preservation of like maybe certain industries, certain things that are being made, like those things that are truly like made in Baltimore? Because looking back at some of it, like my partner is not from Baltimore. So she's asking me, she's like, what's this? Have you seen this place before? I was like, no, this is pre-85. So I don't know. And you learn that this industry was booming and bustling, but now it's no remnants other than the people who are who maybe have worked there in the past. So what are your, your thoughts about about that um, preservation of like makers and potentially like industries here in Baltimore? Big question, Rob. Big question. Um, That's all I come with. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I respect that. I respect it. You know, I think that Baltimore certainly still identifies itself as a city with a, an industrial past or an industrial character. Um, and while it's true that there were, uh, you know, some very large manufacturers working here, uh, you know, in the last century, employing tens and tens of thousands of people, and those, those big manufacturers not here anymore. I, I often bristle at the idea that we have like an industrial past because I think that we also have an industrial present and future and there mm -hmm. are plenty of companies that are that are you know manufacturing here continue uh, to have done so in past decades and new ones that are starting up all the time sure and I think that that does have something to do with with this kind of like character of Baltimore um, that you know we have obviously the port is you know shapes a lot of uh, a lot of that that's that's why we were manufacturing hub in the first place um, but I also think that there's you know many other factors that feed into it one of them being our really vibrant creative economy here in the city I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of creative entrepreneurs that are trying to make new things, make new solutions. And they, uh, you know, they're, the city is rich with that, both from being a place that is affordable and attracts people, people here, you know, for the affordable rents or, you know, uh, uh, the kind of gritty culture, um, but also, you know, out of necessity for people that are here and, and need to make a living. I think a lot of people are, you know, find their, their way to entrepreneurship in kind of the product based or, or maker economy mm -hmm. out of necessity, you know, yeah. uh, of a need to, um, you know, put, put a roof over their heads and food on their plates. And, and I think that, um, you know, which, whichever side you come to it from, uh, there's a hell of a lot of grit and creativity that goes into it. And I see, you know, I'm biased, of course, but I see those entrepreneurs as being like some of the most promising, um, you know, business leaders of the future of our city. Yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> um, yeah, and I think that the, the idea that, for example, since COVID, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, uh, the, the PPE shortages. And, and yeah. last year we worked extensively um, around that, helping local manufacturers kind of pivot and scale up their PPE production capacities. And along with that conversation came this idea that, oh gosh, you know, this is a real, um, this is like a national security threat that we don't actually have yeah. uh, the capacity to, um, uh, to make these things when we need them, to get these things when we need, 
when we need them, we rely on other countries to, to supply us with these essential goods. And so the, the topic of reshoring has, uh, has come up in conversation quite a bit in the news and in policy. Um, but we also are finding that, you know, as soon as the traditional supply chains came back online, everybody, all the big buyers shifted right back to their old ways and just, you know, seeking kind of the, uh, the most bang for their buck, basically. Um, yeah. And I believe that, you know, this is a moment where we really need to do some self-examination about those kinds of systems and, and those kinds of vulnerabilities that we've created for ourselves by, you know, being reliant on this global economy. Um, something that I'd really like to see happen is, um, uh, is kind of a, a regionalization of our manufacturing supply chains. Yeah. You know, I, I fully recognize that I don't think Baltimore City is ever going to, um, you know, produce everything that its population needs. Um, but I think that the Mid-Atlantic region could uh, really do a lot to do that. And I think that there's been great work on that front in the in the sort of local foods movement. Yeah. Um, you know, this idea of like eating local in a hundred mile radius. I think that that can be applied to a lot of different kinds of consumer habits that we have. Um, <clears throat> And uh, and that's something again, just you know, thinking about like the industrial nature of our city and and what the future could be. I'd love to see I'd love to see Baltimore be a leader in the redevelopment of kind of a regional uh, supply chain. Yeah. So got got a few more here of real questions, and then I'm going to get into some ridiculous questions as you awesome. very well know. Uh, so. Maine and Baltimore has had an impact, major impact in terms of job creation, diversity, supporting women-owned businesses, and in annual revenue. I looked at the annual report. Uh, <laughs> we <laughs> care you. about numbers and we care about impact, right? Um, what stands out to you? What would you describe, um, what would you like in your own words describe as the, the impact of your work? Oh boy. You know, I think that what we're <clears throat> really trying to do is change hearts and minds, right? We're trying to change consumer habits, uh, habits that we've all become accustomed to in, you know, the last half a century um, of getting things fast and cheap. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to promote this, this mindset shift around the idea of consuming, um, I think values-based consumption is a term that I use and thinking more along the lines of like, how does the dollar I spend, what is the impact of that dollar I spend? Yeah. Uh, you know, who benefits when I spend that dollar and, and you know, where are they located and who doesn't benefit by, by the absence of that dollar? Um, so I think, you know, our real impact <clears throat> more broadly speaking is trying to convince, uh, trying to make the case to the kind of consumers at all levels, be they individuals or institutions, that um, when you spend money locally, it's a form of reinvestment in your community. And that that has all kinds of additional value that may not be captured at the moment of that point of sale, um, but will be captured over the long run as, you know, uh, in the form of improved social outcomes uh, for our population. So that's that's one way of answering that question. Um, another way uh, is that we also look very much um, towards the success of our individual members, right? So made in Baltimore, I, I should have said this already, but we're a um, our core program is a business certification. It's a free certification. If you are a business that manufactures in Baltimore City, you can get it, and then you become what we call a member. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so 
we survey our members every year to find out uh, all kinds of things about them. Um, one of the things we ask is about median revenue. And uh, we, we take those answers and we break them down uh, by race and gender because we're really interested in, you know, specifically uh, to put a finer point on it, we're not just interested in makers and manufacturers generally, but also in, um, you know, improved economic outcomes for women and people of color and other kind of you know, groups that have been historically marginalized from the sure. benefits of our economy. Um, so to that end, we look at you know, race and gender inequities in, uh, in things like revenue and employment and real estate usage. Something we learned from doing that a few years ago was that uh, the median annual revenue of businesses in our network owned by white men was 10 times greater than the median annual revenue of businesses owned by black women. Wow. Uh, it was 180,000 compared to 18,000 annually. Um, and those numbers may sound small because most of who, who uh, we work with are very small businesses. <clears throat> um, but last year we saw the median annual revenue for businesses owned by black women in the Made in Baltimore network go up by $2,000. So it went from 18 to $20,000. Yeah. And that was while all of the other categories either stayed the same or reduced. So that was something that I was, you know, yeah. jumping up and down <laughs> when we saw that, um, you know, hopefully it's not a fluke. I'm really like looking forward to this year's survey to see like, are we, you know, are we continuing that trend? Yeah. But that's the kind of like impact that I want our work to be having um, is to help kind of level that playing field, balance that scale. At the same time, um, we're also, like I said, we're primarily focused on working with small businesses. Um, and that's not really by choice. That's really who, who's attracted to the program. And I believe that's because the smaller business is more interested in having a local audience and being identified as a local business. You know, for, for a big global company, it doesn't really matter to them. So right. that's why we tend to attract the smaller, smaller business. Um, but there's a kind of a point. There's a, a, a point in the trajectory where that solo entrepreneur who has a, a product-based business that they've started, be it, you know, they make cutting boards and they make candles or whatever it is. Um, they're at the point where they're doing this usually, you know, kind of in the weekends and nights and uh, kind of on the side in addition to their day job. At some point, they've got to make the choice to take the leap and go full-time into this business. And when we when we see people do that, that is, uh, again, like one of the most fulfilling aspects of the work is to, yeah. to see somebody like take that leap and, you know, really uh, get out on their own and start uh, determining their own destiny, yeah, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Um, so that's something that we're, we're really, uh, really focused on and really, uh, I think, a big, a big part of the impact of our work is helping people get to that point. Love to see it. Um, I do a little consulting um, when it comes to podcast and content creation. And I have this one um, client that I'm working with and we did like three or four sessions. And once they were like ready, had the confidence to do their own, I felt like a proud, proud dad. I was like, yes, you got <laughs> it. Love to see it. Do it. That's right. <laughs> so this is the last real question I got for you. And here we like to I like to because it's no we as I. I like to steal. And, you know, if I can share it with the uh, the listeners, that's great, but I like to steal. So obviously, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and there's always more stuff to do. So 
in, don't get caught on the word because some people do. What hacks, entrepreneurial hacks that you do use to maybe be more productive in your day to day? Is there a certain app that you use? Is you know, are you using like calendars? What what do you do? You use Slack? What's that hack for you? <laughs> oh, I wish it was as simple as a hack, Rob. Um, <laughs> there's many things. Uh, uh, I do. I mean, I live and die by my Google Calendar for sure. Uh, it is crazy in there. Um, I love a checklist. I've mm-hmm. got, uh, I've got, just to give a quick plug to one of our members, Write Notepads. They make a great, um, they make uh, mm-hmm. notebooks basically. Um, but they've got a great one called the meeting notebook that I like love the hell out of. Cause I use, I use how it's set up to like manage my to-do lists. Um, and, and another one is phone calls. You know, I think that like, uh, these days we kind of forget that that's an option in terms of communication, but I usually find that a quick phone call, uh, will get a question answered faster, uh, than, you know, waiting on an email response or anything like that. Um, yeah, those are, those are my main ones. But at the same time, I also want to be, you know, uh, aware that we live in a society that tends to push and reward a, a certain level of productivity and, uh, I think that we're also, you know, engaged in, in a, some pushback or some dialogue around that right now, some questioning Absolutely. around that. Um, and, uh, so I'm, I'm also finding myself right now trying to make sure that I am taking breaks uh, you know, in the middle of the day, we got a dog recently and taking the dog for a walk is a great, a great way of doing that. So, so I'm also trying to work in a little extra space so that productivity isn't the only driver. (laughs) Yeah. Like, uh, you know, once things went into for, for folks that were in offices and things of that nature, once it got to, you can work remotely. I was like, you know, that we're only operating at like 40% capacity. Right. And it's like, so I'm going to maintain that somehow while still like cranking up the amount of podcasts that I'm doing, because (laughs) I think one of the things that you said is a a takeaway. It was just that feeling when someone really goes into what their calling is. That's, that's kind of how I feel about doing, doing this podcast stuff or what have you. And I have an infinite amount of energy for it. But when something feels more like work, and workish. It's like I'm having a conversation with someone and learning. Like, how's that work for me? But if it's something that uh, administrative, oh, f- uh, fill out um, this information for a grant, uh, like load this, type something. No, it's like hand that off to someone else that's more equipped to do it. And um, and I think really going back to one of the things you touched on a moment ago with just kind of this pushback that people are having. It's like, how do you feel? But when you're able to run it and do your own thing you're kind of responsible for how you feel. It's like, well, I didn't treat myself great today. Let me do better at that later versus, oh, this boss yelled at me, you know, Mm -hmm. or this work environment is kind of whack. Yeah. And it's a real, I mean, it's a real uh, challenge about being an entrepreneur, you know, and and running your own thing is that you are the one that's responsible to yourself. um, And the work is almost never done. You know, you can always be doing more. There's always stuff to do. And uh, <clears throat> I think I've heard it in, in listening to other interviews you've done with other entrepreneurs. I, I hear it in, in their responses as well, that the need to, to set those boundaries and to you know make sure that you're not up at one or two in the morning, you know, still doing still doing the work that yeah. you should have put down hours ago. You know, it's it's. Uh, it's a it's a hard thing to have that discipline as well to stop when you need to stop. Yeah, absolutely. So 
with that being said, I think that's a good spot for us to kind of stop and get to these uh, rapid fire questions. And you, you, you have a background in a place that I really like. So I need to ask you about this. Um, and I know it's going to be hard for you to answer probably. How would you compare New Orleans to Baltimore? And I love New Orleans. Yeah. I love yeah. Baltimore, obviously. So yeah. Well, we share, we share both of those loves. Um, it's like a second, feels like a second home to me. I think they have a lot in common um, and also some you know, pretty major differences. Um, you know, I, I moved there looking for a, a place really to, to take a break from Baltimore, but was attracted to certain similarities, great seafood culture, roughly similar size, um, you know, pretty, pretty ragged, rough around the edges. Uh, <clears throat> um, and these things, I, I think, I think all, all foster a certain kind of, uh, certain kind of culture that I, that I enjoy. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that something New Orleans has that no other city in America has is this incredibly unique cultural identity. Mm-hmm. And it really has, you know, found a way to invest in that, to double down on that and to make it their signature thing. And, um, you know, I think that you can, for example, you can be a full-time gigging musician in New Orleans in a way that you cannot be in many other cities in America. Um, <clears throat> if you go down between, uh, I would say, like, what's the season? Um, between Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest, you know, there's something happening every weekend. Yeah. There's events, you know, constantly going on, um, public events out in the street, music, food. Um it's just it's just celebrated. They really know how to celebrate life there in a way that is, I think we could all learn from. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I'll just add this before I get to the next one is, uh, you know, if, if we if we hit if we get hit with, let's say, Baltimore's The Wire and that's the, the, the pop culture reference point. Right. Um, I recently watched Treme and I was like, yeah, this was the part that I missed. Like these are like, I feel like this is a different, even though it's in New Orleans or what have you and after Katrina and all of that stuff. It's like, I feel like this is that pocket, that creative pocket that I wasn't getting from the wire. And, and that was the thing I was like, they're just like the same show, right? That was literally how I viewed it. And obviously there are some similar cast members and, and things of that yeah. nature, but that's the way that I view them. It's like, those are in that box set together. When you go to like Walmart or whatever, it's like, oh yeah, here's these four straight to video movies you've never seen together. That's yeah. how I felt about Treme and The Wire. Well, that's another, yet another thing we have in common across the two cities is David Simon's done a show about us. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, I think that <laughs> I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that people often talk about, oh, we need to, we need to change a narrative about Baltimore, you know, like uh, everybody thinks about the wire as like the, you know, the, the narrative of our city. And yeah, I think, you know, the, some narrative change is, does need to happen. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I think that's often said in the context of like a new marketing scheme or, you know, something that's just mm-hmm. like, tells a different story. I actually think that we need, um, if we're going to change narrative about Baltimore City, we need cultural exports that change that narrative. We need mm-hmm. different TV shows. <laughs> we need, uh, you know, uh, uh, music and books and other cultural things that are being created here that um, can tell our story to the outside world, to, yep. to people everywhere else. Um, that, that, tells a different story than, you know, maybe The Wire tells, which I, I love that show and thought it was yeah. you know, incredible television. Um, but there is, like you said, so much else happening here. 
And if we're gonna, if we're really gonna change the Baltimore narrative, I think we need to invest in our creatives and basically, you know, give them the resources they need to tell their stories and help them get those out in the world. That's one of the uh, goals of this humble podcast or the other side of this Zoom session for you. Uh, so in three words or less, this is the next one, three words or less, what makes MIB successful? Community, mm -hmm. teamwork, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Instagram. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. That was, that was a very millennial thing for you to say right there at the end. Um, what is your favorite movie? True Stories by okay. David Byrne. Okay. Uh, yeah. Name, now this is funny. Name another famous MIB. <laughs> I told you it was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that. Is, is Michael Ian Black? Uh, That's a good one. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I was going to go with Men in Black, but fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I'm trying to avoid the obvious. <laughs> that was very obvious, actually. Um, and the last one I have for you, uh, what's another talent that you, you'd wish to have? Like some people are like, man, I'm terrible at math. I would love to be able to do some math right now. They'll say it just like that, like math macroly, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, a talent I would love to have. Uh, good one. Um, well, I can tell you, I have um, for most of my adult life been an amateur musician. Okay. Um, you know, I, I sing and play guitar and man, I would just love to be way better at that. Because <laughs> <laughs> right now it's, it's really just for my ears only. <laughs> that's, that's great. I, I appreciate the honesty. It's like, look, I, I need to just be better at the thing I like. You yeah. know, that'd be great. <laughs> Some might say that about me as a podcaster. With that being said, <laughs> um, with that being said, uh, I want to thank you for coming on to this podcast. It's been a real treat. And um, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks where to check you out uh, made in baltimore all the good stuff for sure our website is madeinbaltimore.org uh, we are also in the process of relaunching our online store uh, which is sort of taking the place of our holiday pop-up, <clears throat> uh, which is simply shop.madeinbaltimore.org and we're on instagram at, at made in baltimore program uh, i encourage anyone to visit our website once you get to the website, please check out our business directory. That's where all of our members' profiles live. We have over 300 uh, local makers and manufacturers listed there. Plenty to explore. So there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Andy Cook for coming on to the podcast, Made in Baltimore, Made in Baltimore, <gasps> Made in Baltimore. And I am Rob Lee saying that there is stuff made in Baltimore, business, entrepreneurship, creators, makers, all of that stuff made in Baltimore. So many times I said it, uh, you just got to look for it. 